0: Section 230, and more generally the First Amendment approach to freedom of expression, is is certainly a a kind of U.S.-centric approach to Internet governance. But but it's had, I think, a real impact globally.
1: Welcome to Elise and Ashley Break the Internet, a series where we're exploring the ins and outs of Section 230, a U.S. law shaping online platforms with global user bases. I'm Elise Dick, Research Fellow at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We are a tech policy think tank based in Washington, D.C.
2: And I'm Ashley Johnson. I'm a research analyst covering Internet policy at ITIF. In this episode, we'll be looking beyond the United States at how intermediary liability and content moderation policies can impact speech on a global scale. Joining us, we have David Kay, Director of the International Justice Clinic at University of California, Irvine School of Law, and former UN Special Rapporteur on Promotion and Protection of the Right to Freedom of Opinion and Expression. He is an expert in online speech around the world and the author of Speech Police, The Global Struggle to Govern the Internet. Welcome to the podcast, David. Great. Thank you.
1: So, David, to get started, let's talk a little bit about just the global environment for online speech. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit how the free expression landscape has changed or evolved in the digital age specifically?
0: Sure. You know, I think if you look around the world, essentially what you're seeing are the same kinds of radical changes in the information environment that you've seen in the United States. I mean, in some places, they've been more pronounced. So in a kind of a transitional uh, country, you know, a place that's moving from maybe authoritarian rule, like a place, say, Ethiopia um, or, or Myanmar or any number of other places, Sudan might be an example right now, you know, they're moving from a place of repressed Freedom of expression, repressed journalism, jur- journalists in jail, and so forth into kind of an open environment. And that open environment, like it is in Europe or the United States, is often dominated by these big digital platforms. A lot of speech, a lot of information sharing, a lot of disinformation and harassment and incitement is happening in online space. And, and so I think that as you look globally, the trends are the same kinds of trends that you see here, you know, the kind of centralization on a few platforms of all sorts of information, giving them a whole lot of power. I think the one, the one change or the one distinction between the way we might see these issues in the United States versus the way people see them outside the United States is that, you know, the major platforms in some respects have even more power outside the United States and yet, for, you know, the vast majority of people, these are foreign governors, basically. They're, they're foreign companies that have this power over domestic speech and communication. And so that puts a kind of a different uh, kind of um, valence over, over the way the debates unfold in those places.
1: So do you think when you're talking about the power that these platforms have, is that mostly the content moderation aspect, or are there other parts of their services or business models that are playing into that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it could be everything, really. So if you think about, maybe just to give an example, I remember being in in Myanmar, must have been, it's almost six years ago or so. And I remember talking to some journalists there. So in Myanmar, and this is before... The the you know basically the the effort at ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya, the, Rohingya, um, the Muslim community in um, uh, in Myanmar. Early on in the move to democratization in Myanmar, there was an opening of journalism. You know, suddenly the media was able to report in a way that it couldn't for thirty or forty years, and that was a pretty big deal, but. But it also was taking place in an environment of pretty significant poverty. And so, so what you ended up seeing was journalists who, because their, you know, they couldn't get paid um, or their um, you know, their outlets just weren't really able to generate a lot of income, they started to move their reporting to basically posting on Facebook. And um, and that had a real a significant impact in how the information space developed there. And I think, you know, you see that in many places around the world where, you know, these companies have such, have such power that they really shape the information environment. But, but it, it certainly isn't limited only to that, right? It's also, you know, it's not just the content moderation. It's also, you know, messaging services, you know, WhatsApp has massive power around the world, in part because it's free, um, in part because it has become such an incredibly useful uh, networked tool for people around the world. Um, but but that, that involves some kind of content moderation or should, but it's really about, you know, point to point messaging or small group messaging. And you can see that in all sorts of ways, political advertising, retail space, Um, You know, big retailers that have comment pages that involves content moderation, but it also involves the economy. So it's it's pretty massive. It's not just the kind of narrow, you know, you know, what can stay up and what should come down on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I mean, like you said, there are so many stakeholders involved. It's not just the companies. It's not just governments. Um, So who do you think should be sort of the primary responsibility for governing these online spaces? Is it governments? Is it platforms? Is it civil society? What role do all these stakeholders play?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's a space that is, um, it absolutely requires, uh, you know, what we think of as multi-stakeholder governance. I mean, not to get too uh, jargony here, but... You know, multi-stakeholderism, the idea that, you know, that the Internet requires involving so many different actors, you know, whether they're governments or technologists or civil society um, or or the companies themselves, that all of those actors need to be a part of the governance space. And that's, I mean, that's been a big part of, of governance for 20, 30 years. Right, I mean the IETF, for example, the the standard setting organization. So the IETF is the Internet Engineering Task Force, right? An organization that makes sure that networks can speak to each other across borders, right? Um, that that requires a kind of governance that isn't just governmental, and so um, so there's all these different actors that have to be playing a role. And so we can't think of this only as government should do this and companies should do that. But sort of that being said, there, there's been this massive increase in private power over the last, I'd say, you know, 10 to 20 years. And governments are pushing back and they they legitimately, I think, at least in democratic space, have a legitimate claim to saying, "This is space that needs to be governed according to democratic rules." Like our our citizens and our representative governance needs to have a role in determining what is happening in this space, and um, and I think that's that's the story of the last couple of years. You know, government pushback, and it's it's almost certainly going to be the story of the next, I mean, starting now and over the next five to 10 years, which is who, who should be responsible for governing this space? What is the responsibility of government, uh, both to promote freedom of expression and privacy and so forth, and to protect individuals against companies, but also to promote innovation so that, um, you know, companies are, are really able to, to both create new models and to protect their own users. So it's, it's a complicated dance in a way. And I think this is going to be like the major public policy discussion for internet governance over the next several years.
2: So we talk a lot about uh, the impact of Section 230 on U.S. politics and society, but the platforms under scrutiny have global user bases, how has the u s approach to intermediary liability affected how other countries approach this issue?
0: yeah it you know section two thirty and more generally the First Amendment approach to freedom of expression is um, is certainly a, a kind of u s centric approach to internet governance but but there but it's had a i think a real impact globally you know it wasn't soon after it wasn't long after um, the adoption of Section 230 that uh, that Europe also adopted something. It's the e-commerce directive, which has some similarities to Section 230, which is it's it's basically a form of protecting the companies against any responsibility to uh, regularly moder- um, monitor the content on the platform. And, you know, whether the e-commerce directive is a response to or is modeled on section 230 isn't isn't really the point as much as to say that democratic uh, institutions that in democratic societies you know the united states and europe basically approach this in the same way which is to say we see internet space and this is pre social media we see the internet as a place for expansive uh, enjoyment and exercise of freedom of expression and we want to encourage that and we don't want the companies to be in a position where they have to worry about moderating every particular piece of, of content that, that kind of comes over the transom that is posted onto their platforms, but also gives them the tools as, as kind of rights-holding entities themselves to determine what their platforms should look like and what they can and what they should moderate, what they should regulate essentially on their platforms. And so Section 230 has had that impact as being a model around the world. And, and maybe to give an example beyond the U.S. and Europe, when, um, when India faced a question in 2014, um, when its Supreme Court faced the question of Uh, of whether Indian law can obligate the companies to take down particular content um, and to regulate hate speech and and other forms of content uh, and harassment as well. The Indian Supreme Court, in in basically uh, aligning itself with the model of Section 230 and the e-commerce directive, basically drew from American law in reaching its decision. And I think that's, I mean, that, that might be surprising to some people, but it's an interesting reflection on the fact that U.S. law has a, has a kind of modeling impact uh, around the world. But there, there is one other part of this that I think is useful to think about, which is, as we think about and enter this discussion and not just we, meaning Americans, because Europeans are having the same discussion. I mean, in fact, Europeans are more advanced in this discussion than we are right now in the United States. As we have this discussion, we do need to think, are the tools that we adopt to regulate internet space or to regulate the companies, are the are, are the tools that we adopt subject to abuse by non-democratic societies? And how are we articulating what the rules are and are we articulating them in a way that says to governments around the world, look, we understand that you have a a right and maybe even a responsibility to regulate this space, but you need to do it keeping freedom of expression and privacy and other human rights front and center. How do you do that? And there's a big risk that as we, as we kind of rethink regulation that we do it in a way that doesn't think about the global marketplace.
2: Very well said. Um, To sort of jump off of that, how does Section 230 impact how U.S. tech companies operate in other countries?
0: Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. Um, You know, Section 230, um, first of all, you know, at, at a certain level, it's hard to answer that question because it's not as if there's any case law where, you know, those overseas or not significant case law where those overseas have tried to sue um, uh, the American companies in American courts, and so so generally, if they were to try to do that, Section 230 I think would shield the companies from liability. There's no question about that. The, so, so the the Section 230 question is is really more to my mind how have other governments adopted something like a section 230 or an intermediary liability re- regime in their own country so that individuals within that country can e- can have tools against the companies because uh, and this is this part is important for sure is that as as much as section 230 provides the companies with a shield from liability in U.S. courts, it provides nothing for the companies overseas. So, for example, if Germany, as it did, wants to adopt its Network Enforce- Enforcement Act, the um, uh, NetzDG, or NETS-DG, if I guess if you're doing the German correctly, which I probably mangled that too, Germany has every right to adopt its own rules, and to impose liability on the companies with respect to their operations in Germany. And that's true for every country around the world. Um, Tim Wu and, and Jack Goldsmith wrote a book in, I think it was like 2007, 2008, about, you know, who controls the Internet. And um, and they were like early on highlighting this for people. You know, we think of the Internet as this, you know, borderless Space without, you know, with global jurisdiction, and yet free from uh, country jurisdiction, and they pointed out really early on that's just not true. You know, uh, countries will want to have some authority to exercise, and Section Two Hundred and Thirty doesn't do anything to protect the companies outside of the borders of the United States. It's it's you know the companies need to be looking at, and and they have a responsibility to observe local law, national law around the world. And that's, that's, I think, what, you know, that's in a sense what we're seeing right now is the companies, like, it's taken a, a while. You know, they've been alive to the regulatory space in Europe, but now I think they're recognizing more and more that, that regulatory space isn't just Europe. It's not just the United States. It's how every country around the world is going to seek to impose liability on them for for failures or for things that we think of as not non-failures, as, um, you know, what they should and should not have responsibility for. And that's that's going to be pretty complicated for companies that operate in, you know, up to, you know, well over 100, 150 countries.
2: Uh, sort of Uh, jumping off of something that you've said before, this is sort of something you've touched on already, uh, the overarching trends and patterns uh, in other countries' approaches to intermediary liability and online speech. What sort of trends and patterns have you seen um, beyond the ones that you've touched on in terms of the U.S. uh, First Amendment approach? Yeah. So,
0: I mean, the one to pay most attention to right now because it's going to be changing, the most is um, is Europe, and um, what what it has tabled. I mean, it really just tabled uh, in the middle of December, so just before we all went on on our holiday breaks, which might just have meant closing your laptop and going to another room during the pandemic. Um, they just tabled the Digital Services Act, and this is a a pretty massive piece of draft legislation that is you know going to be. I think um, it's setting up the framework for company liability for content moving forward in Europe. And, you know, there's, this isn't probably the space for us to talk about all the ins and outs of that, of that legislation, but like my quick read of it and, and kind of generic take is that it makes a pretty significant effort to um, both impose new responsibilities on the companies, responsibilities mainly of transparency to highlight, you know, companies are doing a lot of the work of content moderation, but most people see it as pretty opaque. And so Europe is saying you can't do this in in the shadows anymore. You need to highlight for the public what it is you're doing. And those rules need to be consistent with Human rights standards, uh, and with the standards of uh, of public speech in in Europe, right? And so that will move in a in an interesting direction, but it's going to be a years long debate. You know, GDPR, the privacy regulation, also took years to come to a conclusion, and I'm sure this will be the same way. You do see, unfortunately, around the world, approaches that are not nearly as thoughtful or democratic. You know, you see approaches and some of them have been driven or or maybe expanded during the pandemic where you know governments have said companies have a responsibility to take down content, you know, within a very short amount of time. Like sometimes within an hour, sometimes pushing the companies To basically create what are known as upload filters, so that as soon as bad, whatever bad is, content is posted, it gets taken down automatically according to, you know, basically tools of artificial intelligence. There is a move, including in Europe, to do that. That's we've already seen that actually, in Europe, in the context of copyright, Um, but we see in terms of content moderation, in, in the context of harassment. Hate speech, um, incitement to violence, um, uh, terrorist content or extremist content. We've seen company countries around the world try to really increase the pressure on the companies to deal with that content, and oftentimes, you know, those rules are just not consistent with fundamental human rights standards. And um, because they, what they try to do is impose a real significant cost on the companies. Um, and, and if the companies or alternatively, they impose this requirement on the companies to locate their servers, like all of their data for a particular country and the country's citizens in that country's territory, which creates, you know, a real risk of privacy infringement. So there are all sorts of of things and trends taking place around the world that are really problematic not just from the content moderation standpoint, but from the privacy standpoint, from the surveillance perspective, um, from the ability of individuals to enjoy basic rights to to protest, to organize, to associate, and so forth. But but we see those in different places, particularly in in you know transitional countries like I mentioned before, those that are moving out of authoritarian space or that are are just reinforcing authoritarian or populist trends in their own countries.
1: So just bouncing off of that, I mean, like you said, especially between the Europe and the United States, conceptions of what is dangerous content is obviously going to be a little bit different. And then you also have authoritarian countries that have anti-defamation laws that are used to restrict content well beyond legal speech. Um, are you worried that this will somehow either fragment online speech to the extent that you have allowed speech in some countries and not others, or because it is these global platforms, will it play into the lowest common denominator and have chilling effects even here in the States?
0: Yeah, that is a really great question. I, you know, I've been thinking about this for a while. Um, so you could think about it from, I mean, a, a bunch of different perspectives, but let me start with the first, first point of your, your question. I actually think that that we often overstate the distinctions between speech norms in the United States and Europe. It's true there are distinctions, and Europe takes a different approach, more or less, to hate speech, although it's not as draconian against uh, freedom of expression as some Americans often like to think about it. Um, I think it's pre- it's it's generally pretty thoughtful and just is more involves more balancing of rights and and in a way thinks about the impact of speech in a way that we don't often think about it in the United States. So so I wouldn't overstate the distinctions as a matter of free speech free speech principles, but I do think there is there's something interesting about the the latter part of your question, which is. As Because the companies are global and they operate at scale, it's, you know, it's in their, you know, in their business interest, in the interest of efficiency for them to adopt rules that apply across the platforms. And so I think you're right to be concerned or that there is a concern about a kind of lowest common denominator approach so that, you know, if Europe... I don't think this is as true, for um, in the context of authoritarian governments that don't have the same kind of reach. But as Europe is thinking about the rules that it adopts, in part because you know when we talk about Europe, we're talking about a market of like four hundred million people. If if the European Union were to adopt rules, although I don't know if it's four hundred million anymore now that the UK is officially out, but that's another that's another podcast. Anyway. The, you know as the as the european union adopts new rules if those rules are you know uh, inconsistent with freedom of expression principles the, you know the companies are likely to not only be subject to them but they're likely to change even their own content moderation standards to be consistent with those rules and that means that those new standards will apply to american users to users in you know australia new zealand japan south korea other democratic societies and that you know that could be a problem for people but it also in a way suggests that that the power over content moderation principles isn't something that only the companies enjoy and only americans enjoy it's it's become a very uh, globalized kind of regulatory regime. And Americans will face the impact of this, even though they have no input into the European regulatory space. Um, And I think that's, in a way, that's a challenge for the incoming Biden administration as well, you know, that they're going to want to engage with Europeans on their rules, not just because this is about, you know, protecting American companies. I mean, I think the Biden administration will want to certainly protect American companies, but, but also protect basic American values that are shared values with Europe, Europeans. Um, but, but you know, they're going to have to engage with Europe on this to ensure that American rights are also, uh, are also maintained. I do think, I mean, your point about other com- countries is also important, that other, other countries outside of democratic space have been really pursuing an agenda to, to kind of force the companies often to take down you know, defamatory content. But they define defamation as, oh, an individual criticized the government or, you know, like in Thailand, the Les Majestés rules of, you know, criticizing the royal family. Well, those are totally inconsistent with human rights standards and freedom of expression, and, and yet the companies are constantly under pressure to take down that kind of content. Um, you don't see that expanding into democratic space so much, um, although, you know, you do see analogs to that in the way Americans and Europeans often treat extremist content. But, but on that, those core kinds of problems of dealing with, you know, being critical of the government and critical of government officials, that's a real concern, but it, it's not it's not a concern that the companies will uh, uh, kind of use that to deal with how Americans or Europeans criticize their government. It's more a question of how can we reinforce the company's ability to uh, stand up in the face of the kind of pressure they face from, uh, from authoritarian governments.
1: So, Talking a little bit about the kind of content that we're looking at, you mentioned extremist content. Obviously, there's all kinds of harmful content that are involved in these um, content moderation questions. So looking at the question of who's posting that content, right, you have public officials, you have high level celebrities, influencers, stakeholders who have something to say in this debate. How do you think platforms should approach specifically public officials and public debates um, who might post or be involved with harmful content on these platforms in the U.S., but also, like you said, there's countries around the world that are engaging in this kind of content?
0: Yeah, it's um, pretty timely to talk about it, given that we're recording this after Facebook announced a kind of um, suspension, I suppose, indefinite suspension of um, of Donald Trump. So my, my view is I'd say a couple of things. One is when the companies adopt rules, they should be rules that apply across the platform, across all users. And there shouldn't be kind of special exemptions for particular users or influencers or public figures. It's true that context may vary. So if you're the president of Brazil or the president of the United States or whatever, you you know, whatever your your public position is, and you've got tens of millions of followers, that changes the context a bit, right? You know, President Trump's incitement to violence is, is a lot different than some random individual who has, you know, 20 followers saying the same thing. There's a difference. and But the rules don't change. It's that the context changes for the application of those rules. So, you know, I think the rules should be the same across the board. The second thing is that I think one of the unfortunate things about the nature of the enforcement of the rules recently has been that for the highest level or the highest profile individuals, it's come down to, you know, like Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg um, making the call or at least announcing the call. And that's a problem that suggests that, you know, that the rules are somehow subject to or the rule makers or rule enforcers are somehow subject to political influence. You know, you want these decisions to be made in a kind of bureaucratic way, you know, in a consistent way. And that doesn't really seem to be the case if it's, you know, an 11th hour decision by a CEO of a company making the call. Um, and so I think that the companies really need to reinforce the positive aspects of the last few years of their development and like the thickening of their their rules uh, and the implementation of their rules and to do it without the influence of the business and out without the influence of the CEOs, without the influence of the board of directors and so forth. That But that's not my perception is that at the high levels of of the kinds of people you're talking about it gets very politicized and it shouldn't be
1: so do you think that um different proposals in section 230 debates to maybe specify the type of content to remove or when to remove it is there a, would that impact this issue that you you've discussed with the public leaders and the enforcement of rules or do you think that should mostly be the responsibility of the companies to Enforce and manage.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, my um, my inclination for most of these things is that we, you know, while we want to ensure kind of democratic control over um, you know questions of public expression and privacy, we don't want to give governments any more power than they already have to determine you know, what kind of content is kosher and what kind is not. Like, we don't want com- countries, governments to, to have the authority to say, you know, you can speak and you can't, which is why I think government should be in the position of increasing uh, the the obligations of transparency and also maybe setting up some baseline rules. So for example, you know, government could say, in analyzing questions of content, uh, we want to encourage or even require the companies to adopt, you know, standards of human rights law or standards of, um, you know, of our domestic law to the extent they're consistent with human rights law. Um, And that that could be really positive, but I do think that the, the decision maker, the enforcers should be the companies themselves. But, but but that being said this goes back to one of the earlier questions about you know who should be making making these decisions it should be transparent and there should be some oversight i just don't think that that oversight should necessarily be government oversight so you could see you could see oversight taking place in maybe two different ways right so one would be to involve the courts right right now courts are just not not really involved in the context of individuals who have claims about the company interfering with their you know privacy or in particular their freedom of expression. And, um, and there could be a place for that. And I think particularly as Europe is thinking through this regulation, they could give a, a, a put in a role for, for the courts. There have been interesting ideas in Europe over things like, you know, e-courts, you know, like internet courts. And they sound a little bit far-fetched at first, but but I think there is a role for courts to play here. The other part of it is that, and, and the reason for courts is that then you can at least have a sense of rule of law in this space, as opposed to just the rule of the terms of service. But the other part of it is, you know, Facebook has adopted this oversight board, which is Really, just a, a mechanism of self-regulation. I think if we could imagine a broader kind of uh, industry-wide oversight mechanism that that is similar in structure to the oversight board, but involves, you know, something that we don't we're not used to in the United States, but people around the world are, which are press councils that are non-governmental bodies. To basically allow people to bring grievances about what the press has done to these independent bodies, and for these independent bodies to make, you know, kind of make decisions about those grievances. They're not governmental, they involve the newspapers or, you know, the media outlets. Here, too, you could have the companies, you could have uh, civil society, you could have academics and others involved. In answering hard questions about, you know, whether the companies should be taking a different approach to harassment or taking a different approach to hate speech or incitement and so forth, and, and helping to develop a kind of soft law around these issues. It's just that if that were all in the hands of, of government actors, my fear would be that you would end up with a system of, of restriction basically, and of clamping down on expression in a formal way, rather than, you know, kind of the, the the social and socializing approach that you get from involving all different kinds of stakeholders.
2: So this has been a very international focused episode. But for our final question, we have a sort of US based question that we are going to ask all of our guests. We want to know what your verdict is on Section 230. Should we keep it, amend it or repeal it?
0: yeah, I definitely think we should keep it. And I don't but I don't think that's inconsistent with saying that there are some um, modifications of the regulatory regime, the regulatory environment that that we should be thinking about. and And for me, the most important thing to think about is how do we ensure that the companies are more transparent? And how do we do because right now, in the absence of any liability, there's just not a kind of, there's no carrot and there's no stick to be transparent about their rules, and I think that we should really put front and center in our, you know, in our regulatory regulatory conversation, the question of how can how can law mandate transparency and include, you know, penalties for failure of transparency and what does that transparency look like. To my mind, that would be the direction we would head. I mean, I do think there's also some value in the antitrust, the the competition space as well. But one part that I would connect to our global conversation on that aspect is that we should always be thinking about, particularly because these are global companies, how do domestic regulatory steps have an impact on the hundreds of million hundreds of millions of users? outside the United States. And um, and the competition question is a part of that, as is the transparency one, less so the Section 230 directly, but it can be a model for, for how others are, are taking on these decisions as well.
2: Great. Thank you so much for joining us, David. If you want to hear more from David, you can follow him on Twitter at DavidAK. That's it for this episode. If you liked it, then please be sure to rate us and tell friends and colleagues to subscribe.
1: You can find the show notes and sign up for a weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn too, at ITIFDC.